Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. We have a special show this week. Both Matt, our usual host, and Claire are on Thanksgiving vacation. We're going to dig in both to the right-wing conspiracy and to Biden's initial cabinet appointments and what it says about a future Biden administration. And we have two national experts, very renowned progressive journalists, to talk about this. First, we have someone who's new to Battleground Wisconsin, Rick Perlstein, who is the author of Reagan Land, and in fact, it's his fourth book on the whole history of the rise of far right-wing conservatism. And then we have joining us at the midpoint, and the conversation will be John Nichols, the wonderful progressive journalist and well-known badger, uh, both from Nation Magazine and the Capital Times uh, here in Wisconsin. Uh, so our regular panel will be back next week. So I hope you enjoy this uh, special interview with Rick Perlstein and with John Nichols. So we're joined by an extra special guest, uh, Rick Perlstein, the very well-known journalist and author, chronicler, I would say, of the recent history since the 50s of the, uh, the right-wing conspiracy, the whole right-wing movement that's taken over the Republican Party, the author of four major books on the subject, starting with what led to the Goldwater campaign. Nixon Land is very well known as the second, uh, The Invisible Bridge, which is the bridge between Nixon to Reagan, and then just out and getting much attention, Reagan Land, and furthermore, native to the Milwaukee area. So he is also, uh, also a badger, even though he lives in Chicago now, which we, will, we forgive him for. So uh, Rick, thank you very much for joining us. Robert, it is a great pleasure. I'll always be a badger in my heart. I was marching in Wisconsin during the recall, so I have my bona fides. That's awesome. Once a badger, always a badger. You know, I, I'm mostly through Reaganland. These are these are big books, but they're very readable, and they have incredible amounts of interesting content, if you think you know about these periods. And uh, so they're great vacation reading, for those of you looking for something that flows, uh, but uh, they're, they're, they're thick. I don't know, Rick, I'm on, um, I'm at the, uh, the hostage crisis right now, so I'm not sure how close I'm to the end catch audible, so it's harder to tell. How it ends. And I won't tell you how it ends. Okay, but uh, it's excellent. They're all excellent. And just to frame this up, because you're an expert on this, but a major national leader, it was a private conversation, so I mentioned his name on the left, uh, you know, progressive organizing world, called me up last week and said, you know, I'm just... Their, their mobilization, the red surge that Trump actually generated is so large and coordinated. I'm just beginning to have doubts as to whether the progressive movement can ever really handle that. And oh, so cool. what do you say to those folks? Because what, this was seen as completely, as you've written in your first book in the 50s, as fringe and to be ignored by folks like Eisenhower or Rockefeller, the, the moderate Republicans, and now as that took over the country for for four years and almost took this election under the worst governance imaginable. Right. Well, I mean, to hear something like that, which is very dismaying uh, from an organizer, it's understandable, but this is kind of where I have to put on my kind of prophet, prophetic hat and not my you know historian hat and say, you know, look at our comrades in the past who struggled, you know, over the arc of, you know, literally, a century for things like, you know, suffrage for women, you know, emancipation, you know, civil rights, and say, you know, yeah, the moral arc of the universe 
you know, truly is long, you know, uh, you know, but we, we, we can't give up and uh, nothing is automatic in politics. I think that's the lesson we have to take away from it. It's like, sure, the governance failures were so evident and colossal and you know, I don't, for this audience, I don't have to, you know, go through the chapter and verse, but the disinformation was so awful, right? And the right-wing um, propaganda bubble is, is so, so thick and hard and the shell that people live within. Uh, I've been playing with this example of the, the difference between kind of governing compassionately and well and being perceived as governing compassionately and well. I had this statistic in mind that when Barack Obama passed the stimulus in 2009, uh, it gave a tax cut, right? That was part of the stimulus. And it went to 95% of Americans. And uh, right before the Tea Party election in 2010, they did a poll. And by a margin of two to one, the American people believed that their taxes had gone up, right? So, you know, and then we lose this landslide election, right? So it says a lot more about poor journalism, you know, right-wing thought bubble, uh, the way that that right-wing thought bubble is kind of amplified by terrible both sides journalism, then, you know, the, the, the fundamental character of our fellow Americans. Uh, and, you know, these things can pass, right? And, and organizing can break through and it must break through. So, you know, um, after a hard fought fight that didn't go the way you want, it's a traumatic thing. I think, you know, I've been sulking around the house, you know, uh, but, you know, we have our, um, you know, we have, we have to, you know, gather strength for the next fight, right? So as an expert in this movement, who's, and, and I don't know, you may have suffered some emotional uh, trauma by reading all of this material over the years, oh, right? Some I of which- I, I thought I had a hard shell, but sometimes it just breaks through. Right. I mean, just in Reaganland, just reliving the, the 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 attack on you know the gay community is just uh, it, it, yeah. Um, are you surprised by the willingness to just the heedlessness around human life, or they like the the willingness just to let people die in a pandemic? It seems like that is baked in from the core. And it just fewer people were noticing when it was fringe and they weren't even noticing enough when it wasn't fringe, what was taking the Republican party in the seventies, right. the latest book. Yeah. So surprise. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of sort of the, the, the vector of these books and a vector that kind of continues after the books end, which is 1980 is yeah, this ratcheting further and further to the kind of the purity of what was always there. Right. It was always part of it. Right. And you, you know, so you mentioned sort of the tax that continue to go on against the gay community. You know, in Reaganland, a huge part of the organizing force behind the new right, which ends, of course, in Reagan's victory, you know, was a conspiracy theory that in many ways resembles QAnon. It was the idea that gay men were recruiting boys, right? And in one famous iteration of it, by the kind of second most famous televangelist, a guy named, uh, uh, James Robeson, you know, he gave a huge speech, you know, on TV, which he claimed that they were recruiting boys in order to murder them, right? So it's really, you know, it's, it's like the reality doesn't really kind of match, you know, uh, the feral kind of fantasies, so they have to kind of create a fantasy. 
right? But the heedlessness towards human life, uh, that was always there too. I mean, obviously these guys are always willing to, you know, send people off to die in wars, right? And of course, the book ends in 1980, but I've been doing a lot of research right now about the AIDS crisis. And, you know, as, as is well known, uh, you know, it took Ronald Reagan, you know, six years to even mention it publicly. You know, um, C. Everett Koop is remembered as a hero for eventually writing a report, you know, calling for sex education and condoms and, and speaking frankly and, you know, you know, basically being thrown over the side by his right wing comrades. But the fact of the matter is he had been Surgeon General for five years before that. And, he, you know, his big issue was, you know, violence in video games. So nothing that is completely surprising, but I don't think I would be human if I wasn't astonished by uh, the depths to which they've been willing to sink. And, you know, um, Trump obviously doesn't come out of nowhere, right? And there's a lot of uh, forebears that, you know, that, you know, resemble these, his worst qualities. But, you know, the way that this guy has, you know, so much, so much hatred in his heart. And he almost, I, I've been, I've been fascinated by what, the, what he does with, with these kind of Amy Coney Barrett things and his rallies. It's almost like on some level in his unconscious, he sees himself as a king and has to submit people to the loyalty test of their willingness literally to risk death in his presence, right? So, I mean, that I, I don't want to underestimate that and say, oh, it's all predicted by Reagan. But, you know, it's like history, as you know, as a historian yourself, as a, a study of continuity and change. And I try and kind of grasp those subtleties and show how, you know, all this, you know, comes from somewhere. We may need to, like, we're, we're near the end of this segment, but continue this answer, but you'd start it now. And that is the attack on democracy. Right. People feel like is new. Not in at fact, all. Voter suppression on the right has been ramping up for quite a while. But you chronicle in Reaganland that the blocking of, of reforms like electoral college reform or, 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 or same day registration started with the right taking the Republican Party and seeing it as a threat to them ever holding power. Absolutely, absolutely true. And let me um, just kind of point people, they can Google an article I wrote that kind of catalogs the whole thing since 1961. It's called the Stolen Elections, Voting Dogs, and Other Fantastic Fables from the GOP Voting Fraud Mythology. So this is very important. This is directly, directly part of a 40-year project that is absolutely continuous, and um, no one should be surprised by this. And the fact that people are surprised by this uh, really speaks to one of my most favorite subjects in all my books, and that's how incompetent and feckless the political media tends to be in America. Right. So we're at time. We'll, we'll pick it up at the, after the break. So you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back. We're talking to Rick Perlstein, the author of Reaganland, uh, right now, and many other important books on the history of the right. Uh, we were talking about how the the attack on democracy is is not new, and it's not, frankly, not just Trump, right? That this has been baked into the uh, conservative movement for quite some time. That is that is that has taken over so much power. You know, I want to get your response that Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, in their latest co-written yeah. book, uh, Let Them Eat Tweets, argue that it's 
fundamental to a stable democracy that there's a major conservative party that buys into democracy and thinks they have some way to get a majority for what is a non-majoritarian position that is giving more benefits to an elite that already has more resources or more power. And the Tories bought in and the Republican Party in the U.S., which was not always a conservative party in this country, but in the 20th century, it's become that, had been, and this is the first time a mature democracy has had a Republican Party that actually has parted with that and believes that democracy is a threat to whatever holding power. And do you feel that that, studying the right, that that is a fair characterization? They're doing it from political science and comparative government perspective. That's interesting. It gets complicated when you talk about, um, you know, the, the shifting sands of the Republican and the Democratic Party. But it's certainly the case that um, the slave South uh, knew that it could not survive in a majoritarian system. And, I, and they, I, I, you know, I don't want to criticize Hacker and Peterson. I love them and I haven't read the book. And I think the fundamental insight is sound that these guys, you know, know that they can't make it as a majority. But look, I mean, what is the Senate or the three-fifths clause but a recognition that in order to preserve slavery, in order to preserve a reactionary, feudalist, political, right-wing political system that was completely based on, uh, you know, the most reactionary principles, they could not handle that in a one-man, one-vote system. And then kind of leaping forward, you know, the way Washington was run during the era of segregation was completely anti-democratic and the way the committee system ran and the way the Senate system ran, and in many ways in the way popular culture ran. I mean, the movies like Gone with the Wind, you know, that were basically a national mythology of reaction, that a system in which, you know, everyone was able to vote and got the same power, that reactionary politics wouldn't have worked, right? So, you know, like the history of, the only reason we have things like social security and uh, Medicare and civil rights are these moments in which the reactionary kind of minoritarian politics gets their back broken by various sorts of interventions like the Supreme Court decision in 1962, which said that state legislatures and uh, had to be one man, one vote, right? Like Georgia had this system where literally it guaranteed, you know, the, the, most, the most conservative rural areas had all the power. You know, John F. Kennedy, increase the size of the rules committee, which is the bottleneck for all progressive legislation, right? So um, my most recent piece, uh, uh, actually, on, uh, my most, I did an interview in On the Media, which people can look to, in which I go through the history of the modern conservative movement and how they've always not cared about democracy. And the important thing was just preserving, you know, reactionary politics by any means necessary. But, you know, I got to say quickly, certainly, you know, Reagan, you know, believed he needed to get 50% plus one of the popular vote and the majority of the electoral college. Again, the, a lot of what Trump represents and the modern Republican party represents is, you know, kind of like if, if the history is cocaine, the Trump version is crack, you know, it's kind of the, 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 the potentialities that always exist kind of turned up to 11, you know, to make a spinal tap reference. So I think you're right that, uh, you know, anti-majoritarianism is not new to the modern conservative movement in the United States, right? Uh, but, and you could say, you know, which lines up with this, I think that the slaveocracy, you know, John Calhoun Company were comfortable with the structure as long as it protected slavery and increasingly weren't when it didn't. And then they were willing to 
I mean, the biggest attack on democracy in history is the Civil War, right? They they wouldn't accept. Uh, and then when the civil rights of the Civil War Amendment, yeah. 14th, 14th, 15th Amendments, enfranchising African Americans are passed in the 1880s and 1890s, they do Jim Crow, right? Which and is they're satisfied with that, but they're terrified every time anything undermines it, even unintentionally, the New Deal, a racist New yeah, Deal, right, still so empowered. Yes, and that's when conservative movements kind of blow up and become powerful is precisely when progress is being made. So really, you know, there really is this kind of give and take between progress and reaction, you know, and, you know, the, the, the tricky thing about it is, you know, yes, we had this profound reaction to the Obama movement, but then we have to get into the mess of the Democratic Party and that Obama wasn't really particularly progressive, right? So they're going to think because they're so paranoid and they see the kind of the, the social order is so fragile and always kind of, we're always on the verge of civilizational chaos. They're always going to see even the the mildest faints towards progress as you know civilization civilization ending, and that's why it's important for Democrats and progressives, you know, not to be spooked by this kind of stuff. You know, not you know, basically to kind of they're always going to think that the world is ending, so you might as well you know kind of grasp, you know, policies that really do produce you know uh, honor and dignity and prosperity for the greatest number, even if you know Republicans squeal. I, I'm guessing you wouldn't think that the disinformation, the willingness to live in a totally separate reality is new. You can see it in your, in all of your books in the conservative movement. It's the ability to create a whole new communication system that a large number of people, you know, tens of millions only see that information. Uh, let me get your reaction to this. Uh, what Hacker and Pearson also argue is, is that if you're going to have uh, a uh, something that is so out of people's interest that is basically doing nothing but delivering massive tax cuts to people who have already gotten most of the economic growth of the last 50 years um, and, and sending wealth and capacity to them. You need to rev up incredible emotions based on bias and, and hatred of others and that the kind of right-wing backlash we see that you can't reason with and hates us more than anything Trump could do, us as they understand us, um, is necessary to, to that formulation for them to have a mass base. Absolutely true. And, you know, if, 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 if uh, it doesn't exist, they have to invent it. I mean, that's the fascinating part about QAnon, right? It's like, here's this, you know, mild center-left political coalition that does all this wonderful, wants to do all this wonderful stuff for people that will obviously, you know, force healthcare down their throats, whether they like it or not. And they have to invent this mythology that we're, that we're really eating babies on the side, right? Uh, and uh, that's, you know, absolutely the case. The one, one issue I would make with that is, you know, kind of ginning up strong emotional passions is a part of politics, whether it's left or right. And one of the things that the left has kind of left on the field is that kind of um, passionate anger, you know, good trouble, right? I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is you can hate, you know, the way your boss controls your life, with as much passion as a right winger hates, you know, left wingers making them wear a mask, right? And and we've all become kind of polite clerks on our side. That you know, uh, ginning up a little um, righteous anger, strong emotion is necessary for a movement of progress as well. It doesn't mean you know, tickling people's lowest cognitive functions, you know, their most animal like nature but a little righteous indignation is perfectly appropriate. Well, you're, I think what you're saying is you can't, that you become them if you act in the same way. No, and there's no need to do that. It's like, 
it's right. like Harry Truman, you know, quote, when someone said, give him hell, Harry. It's like, I don't have to give him hell. I just tell them the truth and they call it hell. You know, and this is kind of a, right behind the Hacker Pearson ideas. Our ideas, you know, our fundamental, uh, you know, kind of disposition of, you know, making society work for most people is, in fact, a very strong political position in its fundamental essence. We don't have to cheat. So it does sound like, and we're about to, we're, we're about two and a half minutes from the break here, uh, Rick, that you are more optimistic than some people are very fearful that, that the right is going to take over and Biden is going to be a failed presidency. They won't be able to govern that you feel like this is unpredictable and this movement can, the right wing movement, as strong as it looks, can, can be defeated. To the point of like, you know, some, you know, sometime on the left, we, we pay too much attention to ideology and not enough to the fact that when you run a government, it's administrative competence that matters. You do have a lot of people in this kind of Biden wing of the Democratic Party who know how to work the levers of government, even in the absence of a legislative majority. So they'll be able to do good things. You know, the American Prospect had a great series that you can look up on their website about what Biden can do without the Senate. So, you know, he'll govern compassionately and well, and it's a long, slow grind, but, you know, we'll make progress. So, Rick, if you can hang with us a little bit, overlap here, we have our friend John Nichols joining us, and maybe we can have a three-way conversation here on the Biden administration. It gave us a perfect segue. So uh, we got to take a quick break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. We have been and we still have uh, Rick uh, Perlstein, uh, the author of Reagan Land and many other books on uh, on the modern right and, and well-known journalist, many op-eds you can look up to. Uh, I'd, I'd actually point you to his op-ed on the Tea Party back during the Tea Party Rebellion, pointing out none of this stuff's new guys. It's not some shocking thing, right? It's actually what the, what the right wing has been for some time. Uh, but we were also joined by our good friend, John Nichols. And uh, John, of course, is a very quick study. So he's been doing a lot of study on the cabinet appointments by, 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 uh, by Joe Biden. So, John, thanks for joining, joining us here. It's an honor to be with you, and, and especially to be with Rick, a good friend. So, yeah, so we have two stars of progressive journalism here. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis more than in quite some time on personnel. There's the personnel as policy adage, which people like to ascribe to Elizabeth Warren, but actually Ronald Reagan is actually the one who popularized the term, uh, going back to one of Rick's big uh, topics, Ronald Reagan. And so if, to the extent that's true, and I think there's a lot of truth in it, because I think the Clinton and Obama administrations and the Carter administrations are really limited by who their personnel was. There were some things they just couldn't do because of who they, of, of who they had in the administration. And the Obama economic team was especially blind to any great opportunities to build a different kind of economy or deal with the economic fallout for average people in the, in the Great Recession and the bank theft. And so in this unique crisis, you would need a much more capable team able to pivot. And so it seems like, well, let me put it this way, the mainstream media a take on this cabinet overall, that's mostly foreign policy, we know some domestic, right? And there's some crossover like Homeland Security, that's a little bit of both um, mm -hmm. for obvious reasons, uh, is, uh, is, is very strong. But of course, there are some progressive voices uh, raising concerns about some of them. And there's some concern that there's no strong movement progressive. There's no Elizabeth Warren. 
uh, and there's no uh, there's no Bernie Sanders yet, and there may not be. And so let me start with you, John. What is your overall take before we get into individuals as to what we're looking at here and how different or similar this is to previous Democratic administrations in the post-Watergate era? Well, it's a great question. And I, I think that this, this critical point that personnel is policy, uh, you know, you trace it back to uh, Reagan. I'll trace it back to FDR. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that FDR, uh, I mean, I just wrote a book about, you know, his, his administration, particularly Henry Wallace. They, they were incredibly conscious of who they put into places. And they didn't just think about cabinet secretaries. They thought about, you know, assistant secretaries and, and all of the people who were in, in positions surrounding it. They, they looked at commissions and, and federal agencies as vital places to put the, you know, a young, at that point, a very young generation of new leaders in because they wanted to achieve transformational change. Uh, they didn't worry as much about Congress, although they ended up, you know, obviously worrying a lot about the courts, uh, but they really did worry about building out that, that staff that could do it. Uh, I don't think that any president since FDR has been so serious as, about that. Generally, I think that, especially in the last few uh, democratic presidencies, they tended to go back to a lot of the same people again and again and again and fill out administrations uh, with, you know, the kind of this, this very centrist, very DC oriented uh, group of folks who put an imprint on it. And that imprint was friendly to corporate power, uh, relatively neoliberal, and then often on foreign policy, relatively neoconservative. Uh, they wouldn't acknowledge it. They'd like to tell you it was something different. But the fact of the matter is, um, that's what they were. Now, with Biden, you're getting a little bit of a variation. And I really emphasize a little bit of a variation. Uh, I think that some of his picks, uh, yeah, you could, you could probably define as center left, at least modestly so. But uh, I'd be cautious about uh, seeing this as you know, a big, bold shift uh, to the left. I don't think it is. What I think it is, is a restoration group. These are very competent people. They are people with a lot of experience. They will be able to hit the ground running in the agencies that they lead. And they'll also be able to, particularly on the foreign policy, have a lot of international contacts and frankly, a lot of international regard. Um, and that's gonna be helpful. That, that is very useful. That's something that Joe Biden values. However, look, I, I think we should be cautious and concerned. You know, you, you look at uh, Tony Blinken, for instance, at, at State. Yeah, you know, he's a guy who, who's done some real good things, and there's some things that you can definitely compliment him on. But you should recognize this is a guy who backed the Iraq War, and this is a guy who you know was who made the case for it and and helped to make the case for it, just as Joe Biden did. Came and, up with a partition plan, right, for for Iraq yeah, and the ethnic yeah. parts of the country. Yeah, yeah, and and it's just. Uh, and you can go down issue after issue after issue and find that that he was a part of a, of a lot of the consensus that, frankly, a huge portion of the Democratic Party rejected in 2002. And, you know, so it isn't, you know, this isn't something new. So it's not as if Biden is pushing too many limits here. Now, I'll reference one other, and then, of course, we can go deeper into, into the discussion. Um, Janet Yellen at Treasury um, is not a revolutionary by any means. Um, she's a very mainstream, relatively liberal player. Uh, and, and I think that, that you're not going to get the big break 
there that that some people might have liked if they when they talked about an Elizabeth Warren or someone like that at Treasury. However, and this is the subtlety that comes up with a number of these people, um, Yellen does have a good record of being concerned about um, community development and the use of funding for um, people who don't happen to be corporate CEOs and or Wall Street investors. Um, there is a record there, and that's that's commendable. And so you look at those sides of it. You also on find climate, on climate as well, right? Well, yeah. Care, She's decent on climate, and Kerry, frankly, John Kerry has yeah. you know been in a steady evolution on climate, and and frankly, you know you can you can compliment it, uh, and so I think we look at it in that way. And the final element is that I would really recommend that we sort of pause a little bit and recognize we've got a very tiny portion of what the cabinet will be, and frankly, of what the appointments will be. Uh, I think there is still a lot of possibility that you can see progressives come into this mix. And I'm particularly interested, frankly, in the speculation about Bernie Sanders for labor secretary, um, and also in what you're gonna do at places like um, housing and urban development, agriculture, which is a key appointment. Uh, mm. and, and then the big yeah. deal would start to get into places like uh, the FCC and the SEC. So there's yeah. a, lot, a lot ahead of us still. Well, so, Rick, what's your take uh, overall? We can get into particulars in the next segment about individuals. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that this is my latest riff, which is that on the mm -hmm. left, sometimes we pay too much attention to ideology and don't think about administration. Maybe that's a function of the fact that, you know, I've actually, for the first time, actually become part of an organization since not having a job since 1997, you know, taking over the border in these times. And, you know, you got to be able to know how to run something. And so much of the work that needs to get done is, you know, basically um, reconstituting, you know, just kind of competent governance, right? So um, a lot of it is just making sure that, you know, a lot of these administrations and agencies become de-sabotaged and you, know, you have to know how to work in order to do it. And one of the things that it does impress me about Biden is he claims, and you know, who knows, we have to kind of, maybe it'll be, he won't honor this, to be a transitional figure, right? Which shows a lot of maturity in his part, that there's an upcoming generation of Democrats that are younger and think differently from him and then he could be a bridge to them. And you know, if that works out, if that's true, that means we managed to elect a guy using his safe, kind of boring, centrist, his superpower is everything he says sounds reasonable, that, and, and, and that he can have the kind of um, self-possession uh, to realize that his time on the scene has passed, and maybe the next you know, Democratic administration, whether he runs it or someone else does, you know, can move to that younger, more progressive generation. So you agree with the restoration uh, that John is proposing here. And these are folks who know how to run government are going to be able to figure out what to do when they find it ransacked, which is what they're going to find. Is, you know, once you realize that, you know, the, everyone in the in Biden administration will know that the government, you know, has a role in an emergency like COVID. And when it comes to getting millions and millions of vaccine doses around the country, you know, knowing which kind of vehicles to use and, you know, what the laws are, are, um, will be a life-saving thing. And then it'll, that'll hopefully increase confidence in government. And then you can kind of begin to move from there. So we're about to take a break. 
um, I guess when we get to the next segment, we can talk about particular, and this will be our final segment, we can get to the particular appointments that we know of, and John's right to point out we don't know the whole spectrum yet, and we know more of the foreign policy than anyone else, anything else right now, but then also whether progressives with the strength of the movement should be alarmed about whether we're going to get progressive policy out of this group or, or not, or it's too early to tell. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back with Rick Perlstein and John Nichols on Battleground Wisconsin. So welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, we are talking to Rick Perlstein and John Nichols, and we are talking about the what we know about the Biden cabinet or major Biden leadership. And I guess we can also talk about his chief of staff because that certainly fits in as well, Ron Plain. But I want to start with what really in modern uh, in, in modern politics is arguably it's the first, but it's also perhaps the most powerful. It's super powerful in economic crisis cabinet position. That's Treasury Secretary, particularly in our situation where almost all of the means you can get through, given the the the, the gridlock in Congress, or really the blocking of any action by the Republicans, um, is uh, is monetary policy as opposed to fiscal policy, which is spending money. And so you have a very experienced person, Janet Yellen, who's widely, so widely reported, it's hard to imagine she's not going to be the Treasury Secretary, and the market likes it. She's kind of a unicorn. The markets like her, and she's been Fed chair, and so they're rallying based on the news. But progressives kind of like her. Robert Kuttner says outright she's a liberal who, who moderates like and Wall Street likes. So she seems like a Biden profile. She's acceptable to the whole party. And there are some progressive things she's she's willing to do. I'd say she's the most liberal Treasury Secretary of a Democratic administration in the post-Watergate, whole post-Watergate era. Probably, I can't think of another one who's close. And she is willing to use Keynesian uh, fiscal policy as well as monetary policy, though she uses that as well, which means not only, you know, uh, Fed tools, right? And uh, not only focused on, on Wall Street and banks, she is all about big climate investments. Uh, John mentioned earlier that she's interested in, in the kind of investments in communities that would improve equality and, and racial equality. So it seems like she would not be a barrier to a bold economic uh, agenda. And that uh, even though she's not a, a firebrand like Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren is very positive about her appointment as well. So either of you want to respond to that. That seems like the, it's probably the best case for a Joe Biden to, to uh, point a yellow, a Janet Yellen. I'll, I'll take a shot and then we'll, we'll hear the wiser words from Rick. Um, uh, look, uh, there are three big appointments in, in any administration. It's attorney general, treasury, and state. Uh, defense also is, is a huge one, but unfortunately we almost always get somebody at defense who's going to kind of fit into a, a more predictable, more narrow mode. And, uh, and so you get some defining messages out of these appointments. Uh, at, Treasury has risen to that place because it's become so, such a definitional department as regards all the things that you discuss. Yellen is arguably as liberal as I think you were gonna get from, John, or from Joe Biden uh, and for all the reasons that you suggest. Now, she is, acceptable to the markets because she does, you know, color within the lines. This is a, she works within a relatively predictable zone. 
And while we progressives will see some things that we like there, it's also really important to, to recognize she's not going to push beyond anything that, that Biden pushes for. And uh, she's not going to define some new policy there. And so our interest in her, our interest in her is that she is super smart, super capable, and can implement a Biden agenda. So we sort of go down back to, to Biden himself. And it is, how far does he want to go? How far does he want to push? Um, as far as he wants to go, I think that, that she's probably as good a pick as you can get to do it. Uh, but frankly, you know, the, the task ahead is so overwhelming. The coming out of uh, the coronavirus pandemic and restarting the economy at a time when we have all the challenges that existed before, as well as the reality and much under discussed that this pandemic moment is going to radically speed up automation and the movement toward the gig economy. Uh, the, what we're doing from an economic standpoint isn't just about restoration. It's also about really defining a new economy. And that's a very dangerous turf. And I think, frankly, for progressives, our activism is going to have to be uh, at a kind of supercharged level in this regard to make sure that it doesn't kind of veer back toward predictable Wall Street approaches. I have a thought about that. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that I mean, respectfully, even our measure of you know whether something is acceptable or not or not is oh Wall Street res- responded with you know some degree of favor. And there's a bigger question pulling back the frame. And this insight comes directly from our friend uh, Dean Baker, the Economist, who pointed out to me in an email that basically what the Dow Jones measures is the market's prediction of future corporate profits for Joe Biden to save civilization, basically. And we're talking about everything from global warming to the middle class to, you know, um, uh, just sustainable kind of system. Uh, He's going to have to do things that will ratchet down corporate profits. We're not talking about to zero. I mean, people will still get a return on their investment, but, you know, increasing labor, the power of labor, you know, and, and, and re-regulating things that were deregulated will make corporations less profitable, will cause the stock market to fall. And a measure of, in the media, a success of a presidential administration is what happens to the stock market. Oh, the stock market went up over Bill Clinton. The stock market went up over Barack Obama. And we have a huge task ahead of us as media people to really wrench people away from that way of looking at society. And uh, if the stock market goes from 30,000 to 25,000 and stays there, does that mean that he's going to have trouble getting reelected? Well, I hope not. I hope that that people recognize that if the stock market goes to 25,000, that might mean that America, the American economy is stronger instead of weaker. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I'll pitch it to you, John. The problem is if Wall Street tanks right now, it sabotages the Biden administration. So you do maybe need someone who can not panic that right now, but you're right about the, the media, our ultimate agenda. John? Look, I, Wall Street could go down a little bit, um, even a reasonable level, and, yeah. and it doesn't necessarily tank an administration. In fact, you know, it's, again, as Rick says correctly, it's how the media covers it. And it's frankly how Biden above all, and, and to some extent yelling because, and other members of this administration talk about it. It's why I happen to sympathize with the idea of bringing somebody like Bernie Sanders in as Secretary of Labor, if you can get all the calculations with the Senate right and everything else. And, and that is because you're gonna need people to speak 
to America. And you're going to need people to walk America through um, some of these issues. That if the stock market goes down, that might actually be to the good for overall society, to the good for all the things we need to do. And uh, you know, we're just about on Thanksgiving, right? We're, we're around Thanksgiving. And one of the things that I've always been struck by is that if you go back to FDR, FDR used his Thanksgiving proclamations <laughs> to talk about economic issues. There were huge sections of his Thanksgiving proclamations about you know, greed and, and undue wealth and undue riches and things like that. I mean, he was constantly trying to, to walk people through the process. I think that that was one of the challenge, has been one of the challenges of recent democratic administrations. And so while I'm excited about the competence of the people that are coming in so far, I am not excited about the you know, communication record, their communication skills. And I think that's a huge problem or a huge challenge that I hope is addressed in future picks because mm. I do think that this administration is gonna be under instantaneous attack from the right. There's no question of that. Uh, it's going to have a media that is dumbed down and isn't good at covering it, even if that media you know, doesn't want to tell the story in the wrong way. And so there's a desperate need for this administration to talk about economic, social, and racial justice issues, the climate, and all this in smart ways that are instructive, that literally lead people through the process. And again, I think that we got to be looking at these picks with, in that regard, as well as their, their competence to manage an agency. So any takes, because we're, we're, we're down to two minutes, on Homeland Security here, I'm very interested in how Biden's pick is being lauded by immigration advocates, including Pramila Jayapal, who came out of an immigrants' right group and affiliated people's action like we are, mm -hmm. not sure about the whole rest of the portfolio that's in that giant department, whether, uh, whether, he, whether we like him, we should like him or not. I think there's a reason that immigrant rights groups have been excited, and um, and that is that uh, DHS has been it's such a mess and such a, a problematic agency that you're going to have somebody who, by all accounts, is competent and also um, at least reasonably humane. Uh, it is such a massive agency. You're exactly right, uh, Robert, to look at all the, the moving parts in it. Uh, I think that we do not know. Um, the extent to which this agency will change under new leadership. We know it will be better. And we know that some of the most inhumane aspects of it will be addressed. And that's been said right up front. Um, and, and so I think that's where the excitement is. But it's, it's sort of the excitement of having something really bad ending um, with some still open questions about how much good comes of that. Uh, but I do think, I think the transition there is, is genuine and it, it cannot, as I said, cannot help but be better. So we're, we're basically at time, so we're not going to get to the foreign policy team, but I would, I would just say to our progressive listeners, a lot of uh, entanglements with the military industrial complex here. So this is not a reform group. It may not be as dangerous a foreign policy as Donald Trump's, but it's certainly not going to right-size the military and put that investment in domestic. And there's a lot of so people, including the Secretary of State, Blinkley, who've supported a lot of quote-unquote humanitarian intervention. But we don't have time to get into that, but that's a concern. But they're certainly competent and will, will keep us out of horrible danger. So we're out of time. We've had a great kind of early scouting report on, uh, on the Biden cabinet, which is very incomplete right now, from two of the, the leading progressive journalists we have right now in the country, John Nichols 
and Rick Perlstein. So thank you very much for joining us on Battleground Wisconsin and happy Thanksgiving to everyone and everyone be safe, including you two.